Hi, thank you so much for coming out. Um, really, really appreciate you guys for taking the time. My name is Marvelous Inukumeri. I'm a second year here at the law school and also the president of the Harvard African Law Association. And we thank you all for making the time to come out. Um, so this event um, is jointly produced by the Harvard African Law Association, the Africa Policy Journal. We also thank our friends over at the Black Law Students Association as well for helping us out. And we're really excited to invite Jadena. He should be here in a few seconds, but I just kind of like wanted to let you guys know we'll be getting started. Um, are y'all excited? Yeah, okay. Well, I'm gonna get off the stage because I'm not Jadena, but <laughs> he'll be here soon. So the, when we think about the Atlantic and black history, we think about it as this locus of separation, trauma, and death for obvious kind of historical reasons. And that's true and fair given the history. But the alternative reading as well, the flip side of that, which is also very true, is that even before the end of slavery, these places, cities like Luanda, Rio, Salvador, Nova Scotia, Charleston, the bayous of Louisiana, were locuses of interactions between black people. There was a transnational black culture, and in each of these contexts, black people also underwrote much of the cultural development in those contexts. So when we bring that line down to today, um, and looking at the black Atlantic now, we're currently in a moment where many musicians are coming together across the Atlantic, be it in Nigeria, the Caribbean, South America, and here, to produce a new sound. And from the array of people in this room, we can see that, that we're kind of building a new transnational black identity. So that's what I want to talk about a bit today as well. So shall we hop into it? So the way we'll do it is three rounds. Um, we'll first talk about the album, then the Black Atlantic, and then what we can do about it. Um, and at, each, at the end of each round, we'll take, we'll take one round of questions. So we'll have three questions, Jenna will answer all of them at once, and then, then we'll move on. So for the, for the first question, the 85 to Africa album, uh, highly unique, highly unique path to getting there. Can you explain some of the, the steps and the process to producing this album? First of all, I just want to thank everybody for coming out. I appreciate y'all. I appreciate you taking your time. Some of y'all skipped class because <laughs> I ran into you <laughs> and you told me, so I appreciate um, everybody and you especially for bringing me out. Um, always good to see 
the album 85 to Africa was conceptualized by my team as this idea of literally a highway, a two-way street with multiple lanes. So not a, a one-way go back to Africa uh, message or or project. It was it was meant to symbolize what I think is happening naturally in the world. It's also something since a child I felt like I wanted to be a part of, that I wanted to build the building blocks. It's what my father's generation, what they were doing. It's what the founding fathers and mothers, both here and on the continent of Africa and in the West Indies and in Europe were really standing for. So the highway was something I believed in my mind. It was also something that I was on. So I made a lot of this project, the majority on the African continent, between West Africa and Southern Africa, even with a brief stop in East Africa. So when I came back, I, although I started in Atlanta, made most of it on the continent, when I came back, it was full circle. I was in New York, LA, and I was like, yo, this is, I'm living the highway. I even stopped in Kingston, Jamaica. So like that very diasporic experience was what produced the sounds on the project. It was also what's produced my perspective as somebody who feels like truly a, a child of the diaspora. Yeah, and there's like a layer of identity there, right? Transnational black identity. And I think that this is an album best enjoyed with your people. It's about collectives and kind of being with people. So I think that one of the biggest rallying calls on this album is Tribe. Um, when Tribe comes on, when Tribe came on last night, it, it got pretty it got pretty crazy. The reason why my voice is kind of hoarse today is because <laughs> Tribe, Zodi, Vaporizer, those were my songs. So when they came on, you know, I had to, I had to sing, sang in fact. Um, so, but going back to Tribe, what is, who is your tribe and how do you define tribe? You know, the first lyric is who you with. So the question is for you and for y'all. I think there's a, a positive side of tribe and there's a negative. And that's what I put. It starts off with who you with. So we as, as individuals have to figure out who is our tribe. There's also fuck them all in there too. Because there's this me and mine attitude. In fact, that me and mine attitude is has held us back for 400 to 500 years. We still live by that. Ethnic groups, uh, national identities. These are things that I, I actually want to, in terms of how salient they are, I want them to be less salient and less prevalent in how we interact. I know in looking at other continents, at other groups of people, other diasporas, when they had a concerted effort, even the idea of like white people, that didn't just like spring up out of nowhere. People had tribes across Europe. Tribes became nation states. In fact, before that, it was empires. Then those became nation states. And now you have the advent of like the Euro and the European continent and white people and Christianity. This was a, a, a process over hundreds of years to, to form a new tribe. To me, that's what we have to undergo. It's, it's, it'll be different for us, but a lot of egos are gonna have to disappear to me for us to form something that has nuances and is okay with the differences, 
but doesn't put the differences over the similarities. Yeah, I was curious about that because the way you enter, the way you begin 85 to Africa, you know, worth the way collaborating with Sheo and Kuti, kind of talking about this, both a homecoming, but also, as you said, an opening of the road for much of the exchange interaction. I contrast that with how you began your previous album, The Chief, and it talks about, it's more personal, it talks about how in certain ways, and this is going back to that me and mine, right? How there are those immediately around you who maybe you can't trust, there, there's a sense of going home, but other people receiving you and maybe not seeing you as being at home when you come. So how do you contrast the beginning of that album with where you are now at the beginning of this album? The, there's a quote in the beginning of the first album that my uncle gave me when I was going to bury my father in the village. He said, Jidenna, when you're in the village, you are with your family but your family may not be with you. And that was his warning. And it was specific because he knew I was going to inherit my father's land. He was like, yo, just watch out. Like, you don't know who's really your, your, it doesn't matter if they're your blood, actually. So you have to look out for them. And that was confusing for me. That was a moment I feel like I became a, a man, uh, an adult, because I had to, deal with the fact that this is my family, it's supposed to be love, it's supposed to be grieving together, but some of these people may not actually be have my best interests at heart or even really care about my father. They might just be coming for a come up. So I think that that, that intro deals with tribe in one way. Worth the wait on this album is it's another one. I, I wanted to make sure that the tribe was a little wider and the circle that we draw around ourselves is bigger than just family. I, I think that's actually a, it's a, the idea of family is a new, a new model. A lot of our languages, where we come from, we don't, don't even have words for cousin. Like that's not, even, that's not even a thing. Like if you really go across a lot of Africa and if you go to the history in the South in America, it was, it was similar. That word is something that's fairly new for us. So to me, I want to make sure that our circle, we're continually drawing wider than we have been. So the last question on the album before we kind of go to our first round of questions on the album. More than other artists, perhaps, you really do focus on biography, you know, through your music, autobiography. Through your music, we get a sense of your story, your concerns, your optimism, for potential futures, but I want to understand what is that, what is the importance of biography for you in your work? I can only speak from my perspective. So biography is just what I know. Like I don't, um, I went to school like many of you in one of these prestigious institutions. I'm proud of each of, each of you. Yeah, I am. But I also know that the diploma doesn't mean shit about how smart and how intelligent you are. So I, I don't treat y'all any different than the custodian that I just walked by, you know what I'm saying? The chefs in this building. When I went to Stanford, I, was, I, I, took, I actually had to live off campus just to get my mind right. I, I didn't like the, the culture of being in the bubble too, too long, so I lived off campus, I took the bus, to school with the people that were cooking for me. And I, I did that so that I could feel 
what it was like and feel just touch like real people. You know how it is. Like you really get caught up in this thing. And I say that to say, um, to me, it's just it's important that we are always aware of what it means to be intelligent, what to draw from, and not get caught too caught up in this whole thing, for real. Definitely. All right, so let's take, let's take the first round of three questions. Um, I know we have some mics on the floor. Um, are, if there are any questions, uh, just put your hands up. All right, we'll, so we'll start over here. And then if you have, uh, for the others, just put your hand up and the mic will find you as well. All right. Um, hi, thank you so much for having this event. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm curious, uh, since we're at a boom right now with um, African music, Afro beats really surging both um, stateside and then also in Europe, how do you put, when you're creating your music, do you ever feel pressure or do you put yourself in conversation with the other people who've leaned very Afro beats versus um, those who are, um, since you're existing kind of in this um, fusion of America and African identity. How do you put yourself in conversation with um, the Afrobeat surgeons that's happening right now? Thanks. I'll say this. What my goal is right now is to find an identity that is unique to being here. Like, some of y'all are Caribbean American. Some of y'all are first generation African. Some are African American. You might identify as African from the continent or Afro-European, Afro-Latino. We got all these prefixes and suffixes. Uh, that's great. The thing is, like, if you grew up here, you, no matter what, you still have an African-American culture about you. So no matter if I'm Nigerian-American, I'm African-American, unapologetically. I'm just African-American. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And that, that, which means that the sound that comes out here, I'm very inspired by London because they found out a way to speak Patois, to speak Pidgin, to speak black American slang, to speak London slang. And like, they, f they fused it in a way that you can, they can meander through and do like a grime song, which for those of you who don't know, is like their equivalent of trap. And they got drill music, then they got Afro Bashman, then they got Afro beats. They have all these things and you can do it all and nobody looks at you funny when you do one song and do another. Here, we're like, we segregate that thing a lot. Like, oh, like, Davido does trap, so like, or sorry, Afrobeat, so he can't do trap here, even though he spent a lot of time in Atlanta. I want to make, a, be part of a culture that we're comfortable with being multiple things at once. That's my goal. And I get that by chilling with, I'm, I'm friends with all these people from London, Obviously, Lagos, like, I'm always around them. And they help me understand, like, what it is in the culture that allows them to do that. So that, to, you, to your question, I really, I don't feel any pressure. I just have deep desire that we can do it because it's not, the music will lead us culturally to start thinking like we are part of a larger collective, which we are. I just want the music to lead that. I, I, otherwise, we're going to be trapped and trapped forever. <laughs> Other questions for this part? Yeah, we have one in front. Oh, I, I should state the ground rules, not that there are any issues with the first one. So make sure questions are questions. Um, respect people in the room. And please no marriage proposals. I know that I heard certain <laughs> things. 
But, um, Man. yeah. So, so, okay, <laughs> so know, go I'm ahead. Um, <laughs> I, I know I just ruined a couple of plans, but just so we can. Okay. Well, since there's no marriage proposals, um, I would. <laughs> I was asked, I would like to ask as an African-American, not an African-American, um, what are some ways that we can decrease the salience of various African diasporic identities and create more cohesiveness in our communities? All right, I mean, that's a great question. Thank you. I actually do think you're an African-American. I think we all are. My point was not to say because I'm from Nigeria. Let me just even like the, the I'm going to even a lot of the, the playing field right now. Some of you, how many of you Nigerians right now? How many of the Nigerians are Igbo? Okay, watch. Igbo Quinn. <laughs> but watch this, right? Everybody's looking to pride already. That's, that's small, small, but they can give plenty, <laughs> plenty if they want. But here's the thing. How many of y'all have done your ancestry? How many? Zero. Watch this. When you do, I'm speaking specifically to Igbo people, you're going to find out that you're not 100% Nigerian. You're going to find out that you're not even 80. In fact, you may find out that you're predominantly from Cameroon. <laughs> you, may, you may find out that you're from Togo, Benin. You may find out you're, you're not from where you thought you were because of where our people travel to. That's just Igbo people as an example. So as much as the green, white, green is waving and Igbo people are proud, we don't even know our, our history. The pre-colonial history, like Igbo people, what is Igwe? Igwe means what? I, I, chief, Eze is, is, is higher king, but either, either one, high authority, right? <laughs> so. When, when it, the reason why I, in class of me I wear a red hat is not because I'm a, I'm a blood, although I got blood people in the career, in the house right here and friends around. It wasn't because of that. It's because when you, when you put that on, that symbolizes that you're a chief. However, if you look at the, the, the tag on many Igbo men's hats, it says some of them, the older ones, say made in England. That's because the chief structure was created, it, the original chief was called warrant chief, as in the chief that issues warrants. It was not a part of our, our society. Yoruba people were different, but it, this was created so that we could organize or by the British, so they could, it was like overseers, essentially. Eventually, good, better chiefs came into, into existence and it wasn't just bullies. That's Igbo history. I guarantee we in Harvard, I don't know if everybody knows that. I don't know if everybody here even knew that they're probably not even from what modern day Nigeria is. Their DNA, you might even have more Nigerian blood than you than them. That's how that is. So that's number one. Two, when you look at West Indians, there's nobody, if you're from Alabama, if you're, where's your family from originally in the South? Atlanta. Atlanta. So you're from Georgia, right? A lot of people in Georgia also came from the Carolinas and Virginia. If you're from the Carolinas, then, then more than likely you have Angolan blood in you because that's where a lot of Angolan people were dropped off. Then Senegambia. You're, or Virginia, Igbo, Nigerian, a whole bunch of things. But Georgia, your family's from Georgia. You are no less cultured than somebody who was dropped off in Jamaica 
or Haiti or any of the other islands or Cuba. Like, for real, like, it's the same. I, the, the biggest thing to, to take from that is, like, we're not as, as, as different as we think. Africans also from the continent don't all know exactly where you're from. We don't all know the culture that well. And, and it's, it's actually been African-American women like you in this country that have spawned the natural care and natural hair revolution and reminded Africans on the continent that African hair is beautiful. So it, to me, like that's, it's like thinking like that. So that we don't, we don't, there's no like hierarchy. Cause I know how it is. Like I'm proud, but I'm proud again to be both African American and Nigerian. It, it doesn't have to be either or. And I think for the first generation Africans, it's our job and our generation to not be like our parents. We cannot do that. My dad would never let me play with you as a kid. Don't, don't, don't play with these African Americans. They don't care about education. They're just lighting up, lighting up that smokes. Right. He didn't let me. It's important to never be like that. Eventually he came around because he was a Pan-Africanist. But we have to make sure that we're inviting, we're excited about interests. We never say that you are not, you don't have culture, you're not African. Who are we? Who are you? How much do you really know? A lot of our stuff is performance, bro. Let's be honest. So don't don't accept that. And and also if, if people are harsh, because especially Nigerians could be very like, don't take it personal. That same attitude is the attitude that African Americans have. And that's why we were able to, to fight for justice in this country. But first generation Africans, we hear on the backs of African Americans that fought so we could be in this room together. I love y'all little snaps. <laughs> <laughs> this shit is killing me. Taita, love you. Hey, remember my rules. Hi, um, I really love your idea of creating that cohesion amongst all, but I'm also Haitian and I love my culture. I'm curious as to how under your concept that we can still preserve our own individual cultures, and in the creation of that fusion, we don't lose the, the differences amongst, among us. I mean, we're doing it right now. You just said you're Haitian. I greeted you. In your language, I'm not Haitian. We just did it. You preserve yourself, I preserve mine, but I can still speak to you. You see, I grew up with Haitian. I grew up in Mattapan here. I grew up, then I moved to, to East Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. So, like, that's like, you, you know what I mean? Like, other than Miami, that's, that's where y'all are at. So, to me, <laughs> we, we gonna do it, like, we gonna do it naturally. Like, we, we're so proud and the difference. We're already, we already got it. We're good. I think to me, it's just interest in each other. What, how can we, let's be multilingual. Let's learn, like, I want to learn every. I want to learn everybody. I want to at least greet people in whatever language it is. Like, I just need. To, I want to know that. To me, that's it. Just have interest in each other, and and still have your flag. Like West Indian festivals, right? A Caribana, like same thing. Everybody gets to do their thing. The Trini's rolling around in the mud and whatnot. <laughs> I'm messy with you, but like you know what I'm saying. 
That's it. And at that festival, what I would like to see, to bring it back to your first point, is what I know hurts, because I know this as a kid, is that African Americans don't feel like at that festival, there's a flag for them. You have your Haitian flag to wave, right? Black people in this country need a flag. And I, I'm going to propose one because it already exists. It already exists, but it's not necessarily my place, but it is at the same time. We have to vote and create one. I think our generation should, should have the one that it's like the, it's like the U.S. flag, but it's red, black, green. But we need something. To me, that's the best flag. And when I see it, I'm like, okay, I could, I could mess with that. We didn't grow up with it, but if we show our kids that in the houses, I will take that to the festival. And I'll raise that and the Nigerian flag. And you could raise that and the Haitian flag. Because I can't all the way raise the red, white, and blue flag and be like, yo, that's me. <laughs> I just can't. Like, I don't feel it. I know that we all know the history is love-hate in this country. But that's what we need. So that to kind of put both of your questions together and the answer, I think that's, that's it. That's how we'll, we'll find that unity without losing our, our nuances. So we're basically already there. So let's talk about the Black Atlantic now, this transnational black identity. Um, I want to ask, so I want to talk about universality, right? So we, one could say we live in a state of uh, universality. You know, it's highly networked. Um, everyone's connected by money, business, so on and so forth, and markets. Um, it's set, but it's also a very stratified society um, with hierarchy. Um, with many of the highly historical and power-related social ills, um, including racism, patriarchy, murderous transphobia, and so on and so forth. But this is, but this is, this is the universality that we have right now. But what I want to understand is, as we build this transnational black identity, like we just talked about, for example, how in, when it comes to black cultures, the attachment of identity to, for example, space, post-Westphalian defined space, we might have a different view of that. So how can we offer a new idea of the universality? Like, What's a black universality, for example? Your question is, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, you want to know how, what, what are we, uh, what does it look like to have a transnational identity? Is that it? Yes, and also, if we were to imagine, I think that what a lot of us today are looking for is kind of unity, mutual understanding, and a way to live together across cultures. So like black cultures, white cultures, so on and so forth. If we were to think about a universality according to black norms, if you, see, if you agree that those exist and all that, um, how would you see, yeah, what kind of differences would you see if this transnational black identity was kind of more leading on how we articulate that? I mean, I think it's similar to what we, we discussed. Like, on a basic level, history revolves, this is how it happens, trade. Trade of goods and services usually precedes the trade of culture. So like the idea of uh, the rosary for the Catholics in the building. The way that happened was during the whole Silk Road, Christians were traveling east. Christians meet Muslims. 
Christians also meet Buddhists and people who practice Hinduism. And they notice that all of them are reciting using these beads and they're counting their prayers while their eyes are closed. And they think, wow, that's a great idea. They bring that home and they attach a little guy named Jesus Christ to that and that becomes the rosary. But that wouldn't have happened without the trade route. So to me, what our job is, is to make the trade routes easier. I mean that on every level. Like for all people across the diaspora on the continent, Wi-Fi, that's a trade route. Roads, you, with all this aid that be going to Africa, and we don't need all that. If, any, if we wanted to do one charity and have one charity, I'd be like roads and Wi-Fi. That's it. That's how you enable people, because poor people don't need all these other things that you're giving them. What, we, what they need is just Wi-Fi and roads, yeah. and they'll take care of the rest. But to me, that, like focusing on the highway and trade of what we can do, music is, is a service. That everything that'll come after that will be a natural evolution. I don't think we have to. I go back and forth between this, but some of it I don't think we have to control, whereas other I do think has to be intentional propaganda, yeah, like very intentional. And that's where like us at these institutions, it's our job to create that. <coughs> that's how we can expedite certain processes. Yeah. And I, and I think this is to really answer your question, schools that focus on a diaspora culture, that's it. They have to be Afrocentric. They have to have black and brown people in them. They have to be of higher uh, education, like that Morehouse College uh, sweatshirt that she's wearing. That That is it. Like I really believe in schools. I don't think it has to be the same kind of uh, education system that we see here. I think there should be different things, spirituality, meditation. There should be a lot in there. But that's how we're going to get out of what we're in right now. Yeah, yeah. And you've kind of alluded to this, but in terms of how we think about this moment, often we think about you know, musical collaborations, um, travel, exchanges. These things tend to be, and this space is indicative of it, tend to be A, very urban, so you know, the London scene, or people going on exchange to you know, school in Atlanta, or folks going to you know, a festival in Ghana, but these tend to be very urban and very resourced. So there seems to be an intersection here, a discussion that needs to be had on the intersection between this transnational black identity and class. So what about people who are- Can't travel. Yeah, people who cannot travel, yeah. whether it's North Americans or whether it's Africans, whether it's black Europeans. What about those who live in rural areas? What is their space or what should we be doing to create space for those people as well? Yeah, I did allude to it. I mean, that's why I said Wi-Fi roads. I, I didn't have money to travel. Like, I didn't go to Nigeria for a while, yeah. And my auntie would be like, why, why, y'all be not coming? Because I don't have the money. It's expensive. <laughs> I'm broke. Like, what? I didn't have it. My idea of traveling was riding the subway. This subway. The T, I don't know how many of y'all from actually from here, but there was this blue, there's a blue line. And at the end of the blue line is this place called Wonderland. And as a kid, I was like, yo, 
I'm going to Wonderland, dog. I thought that shit was magical. So I would hop the turnstile, and I'd ride my ass from Mattapan Station to Ashmont, and then I'd ride the red line, I'd do all the changes, and I'd ride all the way to Wonderland. I remember the first time I got off, I was like, I made it. And Wonderland did not look like I thought it would. <laughs> Alice was nowhere in sight. It was not that magical. But I, it was magical to me because it was new. It was something amazing. I traveled for free. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so the reason I bring that up is because I know what it's like to grow up in a low-income community. I would never say I'm poor because I've seen real poverty on planet Earth, and I was nowhere near that. But I do know what it's like to not have as many uh, physical and financial resources as other, other people. What was important to me was finding ways that I could travel in my mind and on the subway. I was lucky because I was in an urban area. But even just the books that I was reading, that, that was huge. What I think we can do from our perspective, because if we're in this room, no matter how you grew up, we have more privileges than the vast majority of planet Earth. It really is like, like I'm serious, Wi-Fi, electricity, roads. That's it. That's the place for the rural uh, poor around the earth as well as uh, the urban I don't think you have to always physically travel and if you do that if we just do that it'll enable people to be able to travel on the internet in ways that uh, we are now and gain new information and to trade and a, a, a tailor that might not have as many resources can connect with a tailor all the way across the seas across the Atlantic and all of a sudden they're doing business. It's happened. I see it all the time. So I think if we just focus there, the rest will kind of take care of itself. Perfect. Yeah. So let's take some questions on transnational black identity. I see one back there. We'll start with her. Don't um, go to class. I know y'all got 1 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We ask and stay tuned. It's more um, important. Yeah. So question on transnational black identity, black Atlantic universality. Yeah. yeah, so um, hi, I'm April Williams. I'm faculty here at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Um, and I wanted to ask or sort of complicate the discussion that we're having about a transatlantic black identity. Um, as a sociologist, I sort of see that there's not one monolithic identity, rather a multiplicity of identities. Um, and so I'm wondering if you, both of you, could sort of, sort of expand on this idea of what this identity would look like. What are the markers of such an identity? Uh, because I see, the way I see it, sort of as a cultural sociologist, there's not just one, but rather many. Um, and so if we're positioning that there is one, I sort of would like for you all to flesh out exactly what that looks like. Hell no, there's not one. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I was talking, uh, and, I, and I never meant to even imply that. I hope I was clear when I said I'm African-American and I'm Nigerian-American. And I have other uh, dimensions to who I am, other ways I look at faith and religion. Like, I, I believe in Islam, Christianity, Judaism, but I also believe in traditional African religions that I've studied. And I'm more spiritual than I am religious. All that is part of it, right? And then, because... As we're building a highway, there's there's things that that uh, that exist across this this continent, across other continents, across the diaspora, 
that we're going to have to reckon with. So to add and complicate it further, then you have, you know, some of my comments on Sway were about pre-colonial homosexuality. And a lot of Caribbeans, a lot of Africans like, nah, bro, just stay on that pro-black shit. Don't talk about that shit. But how can I, how can I, how can we build a highway when some of my friends don't feel comfortable going on it? How can we build a highway where women don't feel comfortable traveling on that? Like that's not, that's not the highway I'm going to build. So to, to your point, absolutely, we have to be okay with the spectrum, how we look, how we dress, how we act, what we identify with, and all that is what will make this a beautiful, to me, a, array of a culture that is not a singular monolithic culture. Yeah. And to the extent that you asked um, both of us, I would co-sign on all of that, and when I was referring to norms, earlier, I think that fluidity is key in the sense that what we have right now is very rigid. You're this or you're that, you're us or you're not. But in all of our stories, you see a lot of fluidity where we can hold multiple things, multiple identities, multiple priorities in the same space. So, yeah. Um, so next question. Hi, I'm okay. I'm my hey, okay. third year here at the law school. Um, my question is, I feel like during this discussion, we brought up a lot of cultural influences, but also technology and really thinking about how the music industry is shifting towards streaming. And so I'm curious when it comes to your creative process, like when you sit down to, to write your songs and produce, how do you manage that tension between what's kind of popular, what's trendy, and what's happening in the music industry, as well as kind of your own individual experience? Well, thank you for that question. And just by living in it, like not, I'm just living it. And what I mean by that is I listen to what a lot of people are listening to. Like as much as I'm a creator, I also try to be a consumer. And then I go to a party, I go to the house party, I go to the club, I see the difference between that. And then I listen to what I think is cool, which is, it varies, but like it might be like psychedelic, Afro-funk, from Cote d'Ivoire in 1968, you know what I mean? Or like Ethiopic's compilation. That, the mixture of all that is what creates songs like, like Vaporizer or Sufi Woman. It's just not, it doesn't, it's not straight ahead. And I take a risk with that, you know what I mean? But that's, that's through natural osmosis, that's, that's how I create. You brought up something, for some reason it triggers something, I wanna make sure I do this because we're in the law school. One way I think that the those of you who go into entertainment law can assist, because African musicians are now getting deals here, um, the same thing happened in dance hall culture, but it's, it's big now with Afrobeats. A lot of those, those young artists are not getting real publishing deals. Their rights are not vowed for. They're on these big albums, and they're not getting getting a fair cut. The infrastructure in the whole African continent is shit when it comes to publishing. So that so you get people really just trying to get live shows and get their money on endorsements, but not getting any anywhere near what we get in the states for publishing. That's not only is that a shame, but it's also an opportunity. Anywhere that that you don't see something, we can build it. So I think in entertainment law, that's something I'd encourage. The second thing I'd say is. A lot of musicians at this point are, not a lot, a few are more than just musicians. So 
any type of law actually is helpful. <laughs> like really, like anywhere from criminal to uh, to. Uh, <laughs> and I say that I say that purposefully <laughs> to um, to anything that can help uh, young artists deal with their finances to um, to entertainment laws. It, it, it's it's beyond just one field now because entertainers can do can kind of move and that's why I chose this profession because you can move across across uh, industries so I think supporting artists that you see moving across the spectrum is, is huge too but I think infrastructure is probably the biggest thing that we need and I, it will come from people like you in this room we need a lot of help I don't know I'm not supposed to point sorry that's your, that's your job <laughs> Hi, my name is Shola. I'm a 2L, 2L here. So we were just talking about this trans identity in your music and connecting these various cultures. What is your worry about it being exploited the same way that hip-hop has been by white people or being co-opted and kind of losing the blackness that makes it so unique? My worry... Um, am I concerned about it? Yeah, of course. Like, like everything that we do. But that's on us. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not a victim. I don't do the victim thing. I, I know that you don't either. That's been our issue. Like, white people didn't, we gave. That's how I always look like, what did we give? Why did you forfeit that? So as long to me, we have to just speak a certain resilience to each other, and and faith. The things we need most are faith and courage and vision, belief. Like it sounds simple, that's it. Like, we have self esteem issue. So that that to me, focusing on that, how do you build that up in our children? Because us, we adults now, it's a wrap for some of us. <laughs> Like the one, when I speak, I'm not even like you talking about me an optimist. No, I like it's not optimism. Like this is prophecy. That's how I think. Like it's not. I'm not just hopeful. This is I believe like a thousand million trillion percent because there's a high tide and a low tide in history. So when people are separate, they unify. It's just natural. It's a law. I love that it's a law, because if not, I'd be like, damn, we ever going to get together? Like, this, we never going to be united. But now I know it. We good. We fine. That, so to me, I, I, I'm, your concern, yes, I have. But I think if we focus on, on really believing that we're worth it and knowing our self-worth, we'll be fine. Yeah, so um, let's take, let's address the last section because we have a couple of minutes left. So I just want to quickly ask your opinion, because it was meant to discuss what we in this room can do. You talked about what lawyers can do, but we also have people from the business school, from the design school, from that. I, I, I was getting there. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> big ups, big ups to that school. Um, what can people in these, what was that? And the med school. Uh, the college. We, we're all here. We're all here. All right. Um, yeah. 
moral of the story, um, so what can we do in this room as young professionals with all our privileges about to enter our respective fields to support all these communities that we've been discussing? Build, like, y'all next to each other, medicine, education, uh, law, business. What? Y'all got a nation right here. That's it. Like, don't be afraid of that. We afraid, dog. Oh, I'm serious. I know it. Like, we are afraid. We are afraid to build real institutions together. We go and do these NGOs and nonprofits here and there. And you go about your life. Like, when y'all leave here, how many of y'all going to keep in contact? Not just friends. You actually don't even need to be friends. You need to have a vision and build one roof that has all these pieces together. When we do that, amazing things happen. Like when you have not just a conference, but you actually plot and plan. In this very city, Frederick Douglass met with Prince Hall, met with Harriet Tubman. Yeah. You know what they accomplished? That's why that little brick road that you see going through Boston, that's the Underground Railroad. That's what happened when they met. When Kwame Nkrumah and Namdi Azikiwe, they went to Lincoln University and HBCU, and they learned about the philosophies of a man named Marcus Garvey, who was Jamaican. And they learned about this, and they went home and created the countries of Nigeria and Ghana. Jomo Kenyatta met with Garvey's wife and W.B. Du Bois, and then Jomo Kenyatta did the same thing in Kenya. And they were inspired by the Haitian Revolution in Tucson. That, that's how it works. But that's what happens when you're under one roof and you connect and you stay in touch and you build with that idea. Everything was plotted and planned. We can't, like, we're so individual right now, more than any other generation. Our phone, obviously, like, we we swiping, swiping away all day, and I get it, but, like, my, my hope and my prayer for, you, for us is that y'all actually connect to build something together and not be afraid of really building real institutions. Like, not like, I need to go to this. You here now? Cool. Build something better than this. Build something better than Harvard. I'm not, I'm not impressed by anything you people are doing. I, I believe the line was, um, that's why I got admitted, but I still rejected Harvard. Hey, I got, <laughs> hey, look, I got Harvard cufflinks on yeah. today. I went to the coop for y'all. Because oh. I, I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> of course. Um, so we have time for one more question. Hi, I'm Jean, second year at the med school. Great concert last night. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Of course. And uh, <laughs> last night you were mentioning like economic opportunity and um, supporting like the black dollar and things like that. And I'm just curious on your thoughts of like pro-blackness being deemed discriminatory by like the broader culture. You know, they view it as anti-insert another race. So what are your thoughts? I ain't worried about them. I'm worried about how we, I'm worried about us. I'm serious. Can y'all hear me? There we go. I'm worried about how we look at it. That's why I say the fear, like we afraid. Somebody pro-black, all of a sudden they're revolutionary. What's revolutionary by wanting to care about somebody else? Like that's, that's a human, since I was a baby, I, I wanted that. 
I care. People are struggling. Cool. I want to care for them. That's all we're doing. And that's what I spoke to last night. Every time a group vies for their group, it's okay. It doesn't negate another group. It doesn't negate it. For those of you who weren't at the show, I spoke to the idea that when, when uh, marginalized communities work for them, when a, a Muslim or a Mexican or women or anybody who feels LGBTQIA community, when you feel like, yo, I'm working for my group, I'm, I'm happy. Please, that makes us better. Handle your wing. It's not like if Harvard, this is the law school. Then there's the business school. There's different departments here. That's how I look at different groups. You working on your department. So, yeah, we got a lot of work to do, but I ain't worried about nobody talking about that. I like that. Let them talk. We have, we have, but we have to, we cannot be afraid of that. That's what I'm saying. When I say things, I, sometimes I go too far. I was at Essence. I said, black designers, I want all black uh, celebrities or artists to wear the red carpet and wear black designers only. I didn't really want to say only, but more is really what I, I and I misspoke. But I'm fine. I'd rather go far. And we can reel it back. We can reel it back. You know what I'm saying? So that, that, that to me is, is okay. Like, where, what school do you go to? Uh, I'm at the med school second Med year. school. So, like, my, my, what my hope is, is that you think whatever you do in life, you, you're like, yo, I can build where I'm at. I can build this hospital. I can build this clinic. And my sister thinks like that. She just founded a company called MDoc. She, it operates in Nigeria. It's like a, a Yelp for, for uh, people with chronic illness. And also, she does these pop-up clinics around Lagos. And it's going to expand across West Africa and then across the African continent. But she, she's like, yeah, I can, I can do that. But she's a beast. Like, med, med school, MBA, everything by, like, uh, school of public health by age 30. She, like, had everything. So, but that's because she's like, yo, I can, I, I can build it. That's what we have to be like. We are builders. That is our generation. Sorry. Thank you. Hey, you know I can keep talking for her. All right. So, um, yes. Yeah, so thank you so much for that. And can you all join me one more time in thanking Jadena for dropping by? I don't know if I have something else to say, <laughs> but I just want to, I just want to, I really appreciate your time. Time is more valuable than money, and, and y'all gave the time today, and I hope that we took something home. I really, like, from the bottom of my heart, it, it's a prayer. Everything we said today is a prayer. Like, I hope I put juju on everybody. That, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing. And I'll get better, I promise, I commit to it. I'll get better as a musician, as a person, as a man. And I'll do it until I die. And I hope that literally it washes over all of us so that we feel the faith, the courage, the undeniable truth that we will do this in our generation. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but Dubai was built in 20 years. So to me, we can do a lot of shit way faster now than ever before. It don't need to take 100 years to do it. We young. This is the time. This country was built by these young ass motherfuckers. They was like 18, 25. <laughs> Jefferson was 33 years old, just to, and he was the old guy. That's that who built the US, serious. So to me, that means we can do that in our time, 
in our generation just obsess over it. I'm not disciplined. I'm just obsessive. And if we're all obsessed about this, we're going to be dandy as hell. Shit. 